0: For those of you visiting with us today, let me fill you in. Uh, Since the beginning of 2019, I have been preaching through this precious book of Revelation. And so, we've looked at the seven churches. We looked at Ephesus, the loveless church, and Smyrna, the persecuted church, Pergamum, the compromising church, Thyatira, the immoral church. Last week, we looked at Sardis, the dead church. And this morning, we are going to be talking about the church at Philadelphia the missionary church. So if you have your Bible, Revelation chapter 3 starting in verse 7 as you find your place, let me tell you an episode from Billy Graham's life. In his autobiography, Just As I Am, Billy Graham wrote about the big break that happened in his early life. The year was 1949. And before that time, nobody knew who Billy Graham was. He was just a Country preacher. But in 1949, something happened in Los Angeles that catapulted him on the national stage. He started his evangelistic ministry with a three-week crusade in Los Angeles. And during the first two weeks, he said that the meeting was rather ordinary. The attendance was decent, but it certainly wasn't filled to capacity. And the media, which really didn't think much of Billy Graham, just said that what he was doing in the city was going to be a flash in the pan. Well, as the crusade rolled around to its third week, a decision had to be made. Were they going to continue the meeting or were they going to fold up the tent and move on to the next thing? And so, Billy said that he and his music minister, Cliff Barrows, decided to pray. And they asked God, they said, God, We need a clear word from you. Tell us. Do we need to continue the meeting another week? Or are you done here, Lord? Well, Billy said that the Lord began to answer that prayer in some unexpected ways. So here's what happened. God started dealing with Southern California's best-known radio personality, a man named Stuart Hamblin. He was a celebrity in those days. And Billy's preaching had made such an impact on Stuart Hamblin that he attended one night and he didn't even make it all the way through the message because he got fighting mad because he knew the preacher was preaching uh, to his heart. It was really the Holy Spirit though. He got up and he walked out of the service before it was over, went into a bar and he tried to drown his conviction in booze. Well, he couldn't escape the tug of the Holy Spirit on his heartstrings. So, the story goes that Stuart Hamblin called Billy Graham at 2 a.m. in the morning and told him that the Lord was dealing with his heart. Billy met him in the middle of the night and led Stuart Hamblin to Christ. Well, the very next day, Stuart Hamblin got on the air and he announced to thousands of radio listeners across the area that he had given his life to Jesus. And that night, he was going to the Billy Graham crusade to make a public profession of faith. Well, the announcement sent shockwaves through Southern California. And then something unexpected happened on the heels of that. When word got around of what the Lord did in Hamblin's life, the newspaper baron, William Randolph Hearst, who was not exactly a Sunday school teacher, sent a two-word message to his editors. And the message was this, Puff Graham. And overnight, the media spotlight was shifted to covering Billy Graham's crusade not only that but other well-known people began to come to know the Lord there was the Olympic runner Louis Zamperini he gave his life to Christ during those meetings and a former gangster Jim Voss also gave his life to Christ well to make a long story short the meeting was extended another eight weeks and there were more than 3,000 decisions for Christ the tent was overflowing with people Uh, out in the streets, and the success of that one meeting changed Billy Graham's whole ministry. In fact, he recalled that event. He said in his book, We'd gone to Los Angeles unheralded, but when we left, the Spirit of God moved on the city as never before. And the rest, they say, is what? History. Well, now, I take that page out of Billy Graham's life, because I think that is a perfect example of what happens when God opens a door for ministry. He does it in a way that's unexpected and a way that nobody else can receive credit except God. Now, were it not for God's sovereign work in Billy Graham's first crusade, there's no telling how different our world might be. Could you imagine what the world would be like with no Billy Graham? Well... Throughout church history, there have been critical junctures where God has providentially made a way for the gospel to go forward in new ways and into new territories. And you've heard me say it before, God is behind the scenes and He moves all the scenes that He's behind. Now, we see this throughout the Bible and through church history. In Acts 2, God opened the door for the first church ministry to begin when He sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Then in Acts 16, we see another door open as Paul gets that great vision of the Macedonian man. And he says, come down here and preach the gospel. And God opened the door for Paul to take the message of Christ to Europe. It happened later on in the year 1440. An invention came along called the Gutenberg Printing Press. And it coincided with another event called the Reformation such that when the Bible started to be translated from Latin into English and German, the technology existed to take the message of the Bible and disseminate it to the crowds. And then it happened in the founding of this nation in 1620, when the first pilgrims came on American shores. They came with Bible in hand and with the express purpose of founding a nation under God. God opens doors and closes doors. Amen? So, we see it in church history, and we see it most notably here in Revelation chapter 3, the church at Philadelphia. They are the church of the open door. Number six on our list of seven. And they stood on the threshold of an exciting opportunity to reach out with the gospel. In fact, of all the letters of the seven mentioned here, this is the one That is my favorite. I would most have liked to have been in the little church in Philadelphia on the day that the mail arrived and they opened this letter and they read it to the church. Because this church is unique. Not only were they about to spark a movement for God, but this church has nothing negative. No criticizing word is spoken from Christ to them. The only other church that can say that along with Philadelphia was Smyrna. So every church wants to be like the Philadelphian believers. They had all the pieces in place ready for this church to spark a movement for God. And in this report card, this letter that we have of them, let's highlight the positive things that were going on in the life of this church and how we can also look at ourselves and the open door that God has given us. So as we open the letter in verse 7, we read number one about the sovereign Christ of the church. Number 1, the sovereign Christ of the church, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. Now, this letter begins much like the others, we see a description of the glorified Christ. And what grabs my attention in this verse is what Christ holds in His hand. You see it there? He has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. Now, earlier on in the book of Revelation, in chapter 1 and verse 18, we see that Christ also possesses two other keys there. He has the key to death and the key to Hades. Any time that you see a picture of keys in the scripture, it always connotates sovereignty and control and power. Now what does this mean here in the text? The key of David? Well, you have to do a little bit of homework. You go back into the Old Testament and you find that this is a reference made in Isaiah 22. And in Isaiah 22, we read a passage about a man named Eliakim. And Eliakim held what was called in that passage the key to the house of David. In other words, this is one of the men in David's kingdom, in David's administration, who held the key to the storehouse of all of David's treasury, his riches, and his resources. Now, very interesting, isn't it, that Jesus adopts that title of himself. He's the one who now holds the key of David. So, what does that mean? It means that Jesus has the authority over the domain, which at one time belonged to David. Jesus now holds that. Of course, we know that as you study the Old Testament, David uh, was promised a descendant, a king that would come from him his house, and that king would have a dominion and a kingdom that would last forever and ever. And Jesus, we know, is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And in Isaiah 9, 7, we read this. It says, of the increase of His government, speaking of Jesus, and of the peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what is the Bible telling us? it is helping us to understand that Jesus possesses total authority over a spiritual and a physical kingdom to come. He made it all. Uh, He gave His all. And friend, He owns it all. He rules it all from a seat of power in heaven. So when you add the key of David to that key ring that Jesus already has, we saw in Revelation 1, He's got the key to death, the key of Hades, the key of David, and you understand very quickly that Jesus is sovereign over every square inch of the universe, whether it's physical or whether it is spiritual. He has authority to open and close. A few years ago, we had some keys over in the Family Life Center of our church that weren't working right. We had to call a locksmith. And the locksmith came and he worked on our locks and he changed some keys out. And he made my key And he handed it to me, and as I took the key from his hand, I looked at it, and I noticed it had a number one inscribed on it. I said, What does this mean? He said, you've got the number one minted key. He said, this is the master key. This key will get you in any door, any lock in this whole building. And friend, if I can borrow an analogy, what I want to say is that Jesus Christ possesses the master key that opens every heart, that opens every lock. It's the master key to every kingdom, nation, and heart on the earth, every principality, domain, whether it be physical or spiritual. He is Lord over life and death, over space and time, over birth blessing and cursing, and over heaven and hell, He is the sovereign Christ of the church. Somebody today say amen if you believe that. Listen to me, friend. He can open the windows of heaven to bless God's people such that Satan can't stop it. And if he wants to shut something up to protect God's people, there's no prince or no politician that can stop it from happening He unlocked the door of salvation for all who would enter in and all who would believe. Friend, He's the keeper of my destiny and He is the custodian of all of heaven's riches, the sovereign Christ of the church. But then we get further into this letter and we see number two, the special circumstances of the church. Now in the main body of this letter, Christ makes some promises to these people at Philadelphia. And these promises create a special set of circumstances for them to where they are going to be able to minister and take the gospel forward. The first promise we read of is in verse 8. He promised to hand them favor. Notice what verse 8 says. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now it's important for you to know a little bit of geography in studying this church. Philadelphia sat at a very critical intersection. In fact, I think as the believers in Philadelphia read this letter, they would have thought of that open door and their strategic positioning because they stood at a very important gateway that connected many trade routes to the east lay the Orient and all of the land and treasure uh, in that direction. And then to the west uh, lay Asia Minor. And so the Philadelphian Christians were at a critical place where they could minister to people and influence thousands as they made inroads and came in and out of their city. And so what this text is telling us is that this church was given a favorable uh, set of circumstances to preach and reach like never before. Now, as we have studied these seven churches, I've been diligent to try and point out to you that there's a second level of meaning under this, and that is that each of these churches is also a prophetic picture of a period in church history. Remember we said that Ephesus was the period of the apostolic age? Smyrna was that persecuted church? from 100 to 300, where the Roman Empire was trying to destroy the church. Pergamum was that compromising period where the church and the state were married together and the Catholic Church was born. Well, when you come to Philadelphia, many commentators say that this church represents that time period in church history from the beginning of the Reformation in the 1500s up to about the year 1925. And why do they say that? Because during that time period, you have the birth of the modern mission movement. In other words, at that time period, God opened a door for missionaries to be sent out across the globe like never before had happened in world history. Listen to what David Jeremiah said about this. In his book he wrote, In church history, the period of great missionary outreach from 1750 until around 1925 was exemplified by the church at Philadelphia. This was the era of Hudson Taylor, John Wesley, George Whitfield, Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, and many more. The Salvation Army was founded as were a galaxy of missionary agency. It was a time of great spiritual awakening as the gospel moved to the ends of the earth. Perhaps there's nobody that epitomizes this period of time like a man that I've mentioned before, William Carey. He's known as the Father of of modern missions. The story goes that William Carey was uneducated. He was poor. But he longed to preach the Gospel and reach the nations. He was a pastor of a small church in England. His day job was a cobbler. And it is said that in his workshop, he would always have a big map hanging up and his Bible open as he worked on those shoes He longed to get in a boat and go somewhere and take the gospel to a people who had never heard the name of Jesus. Well, this great opportunity came in the year 1792. He delivered a famous message to the Association of Baptist Churches of England. He said that we have a moral obligation to reach the whole world with the gospel, to fulfill the Great Commission. He gave that great quote in the message, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. But old William Carey was opposed. People thought, how can this hillbilly, how can this uneducated man take the gospel to anybody? He doesn't have wealth. He doesn't have title. He doesn't even have education. But how many of you know that sometimes God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? One crusty old man told William Carey, young man, you sit down. When God chooses to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help or mine. Many people would have quit. They would have been discouraged. But the cold water committee didn't get the best of William Carey. He went on and he raised his own money. In 1793, he got on a boat and he was England's first missionary to India. And he died a few years later at the age of 73, the year was 1834 when he passed. And in those few years of ministry, he had seen the Bible translated into over 40 different languages. Many, many people under his ministry had come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He founded a Bible college, and we are still seeing the fruit of the ministry of this man even today. And you know what's very interesting about his life is he goes out to be the first missionary from England, in the late 1700's and that coincides with the founding of America and do you know why God created the nation of America the reason why God put America on the map is because this nation has been the greatest missionary force that has ever been on the planet earth and America has had the ability to boast of being able to send more missionaries across the world to reach people for Jesus than any other but now friend look where our nation is it might be that if we continue down the dark path that we are on, that they're going to have to send missionaries to America to save us from ourselves. But the Lord promised this people a special favor. Then He promised to humble their foes. Look at what He said in verse 9. He said, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. Who is He speaking of? Well, if you back up in verse 9, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, They will learn that I have loved you. We've already seen these nefarious characters come up earlier. In chapter 2, verse 9, that letter to Smyrna, Jesus talked about this group called the synagogue of Satan. Apparently, they were Jews who took it upon themselves to persecute the early Christians. And they did this in Philadelphia. But Jesus says, hey, don't you worry about them. I'll take care of your enemies. And this is very interesting because every time there's an open door, anytime you have an opportunity to do ministry in the church, there's always a new set of adversaries that come along with it. It happens in the local church, it happened in Philadelphia, it happened in the book of Acts as the gospel goes out. Who's the first bad guy to rear his ugly head? Saul. But what did God do with Saul? He turned him into Paul. You see, when the gospel advances, God can take those adversaries and turn them into advocates, can't He? And what a great promise this is for you and me as we read it, that if we take the Lord's work to heart, guess what? If we take care of God's work, He'll fight our battles, won't He? He'll take care of the opposition. He'll take care of the persecution. But then, notice, He not only promised them favor, and He promised them that He would humble their foes, but in verse 10... He promised to hold them from the future trial. Look at this in verse 10. This is an incredibly important verse. It says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Friend, If you write in your Bible, you need to underline that verse. You need to circle that verse. You need to memorize that verse. Because this verse pertains to the tribulation period. That last time period where God is going to deal with the unbelieving world and with Israel and with Satan. It hasn't happened yet. It's a seven year period that is going to happen in the future. It's profiled in detail in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Now, let me just tell you that there's different views out there about what is the church's relationship to the coming tribulation. There's three main positions that you can hold. First is what's called pre-trib, pre-tribulational. That means that we believe the church will be taken out of the world before that terrible time of judgment befalls the earth. I don't know about you, I don't know what you believe, but I'm pre-trib and I'm going to explain why. There's another position, number two, it's called mid-tribulational. That's the idea that the church will make it three and a half years into the tribulation and then the rapture will happen and God will take His people out. There's a third position called post-tribulation and those folks believe that the church is going to have to endure all seven years of the tribulation and then they will be raptured at the end. Friend, the return of Christ is supposed to be a blessed hope and that doesn't sound like a blessed hope to me, does it? So, why... Am I pre-tribulational? Well, let me give you some reasons. One of those reasons is right here in verse 10. Did you notice how it was phrased? Read with me very carefully what it says here. Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is to come on the whole earth. He doesn't say, I will go with you through the hour of trial. He says, I will keep you from it. I will prevent you from going into that. Not only do we have this verse, but we have other verses like 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, which tells us that God has not destined His church for wrath. Somebody say amen right there. Meaning that we can rule out mid-trib and post-trib because God's plan is not for the church to go through that terrible time. second reason I believe in pre-trib is because the Bible presents the return of Christ... And the rapture of the church as two separate events. You can't conflate the two and make them one. They are distinct in the Scriptures. In fact, at the rapture, Jesus comes in the air to come gather His church, and there are no signs that precede it. But at the return, Jesus Christ comes to the earth with His church, and there are many signs that precede that. Just read Matthew 24. So, since we can see that distinction, we rule out... The other two. And then there's also another clue in the book of Revelation that I want you to be sensitive to. And it's this. That the word church, that word ecclesia, do you know that it's mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation? And it should because Jesus is talking to the churches there. But from that point on, in Revelation chapter 4, through the rest of the book, chapter 19, which is all about the tribulation, you know how many times the word church is mentioned? Zero. It's not mentioned one time. You know why? Because God doesn't see the church on the earth at that time, and that's enough to make a Methodist shout. Amen? Amen. Friend, He's going to say the Word. He's going to speak the Word to the church, and friend, I believe every word of it Where the trumpet is going to sound, the archangel is going to make his cry, and the command is going to be given, Church, come up hither, we'll defy gravity, we'll go up, up and away. Friend, do you have a one-way ticket to meet Jesus in the air? Ain't nothing on this world going to hold you down, friend, when Jesus comes back to take His church to forever be with Him. I think about my my Uncle Ricky. My Uncle Rick is a a preacher, and we used to make fun of him as kids because he drove around a beat-up old Subaru. I mean, it was an eyesore. It had rust growing on it. And the, the seat was literally a bucket seat because the seat was broken and he had it propped up with a bucket. When we saw that ramshackle thing coming down the driveway, we laughed him to scorn. But you know, one thing I remember about my uncle's old Subaru, he had a bumper sticker on the back of it. It was in bold red. And it said this, In case of rapture, this vehicle will be unmanned. Amen. Praise God. I think about Christ coming. And friend, let me tell you, if Jesus Christ came today, I think that would solve about every single problem that you and I have got, doesn't it? I'm looking forward to the coming of the Lord, because this world just doesn't have anything left for me. I feel the pull of heaven more and more every day. And to see Jesus face to face, to sing with the angels, to cast crowns at His feet, who wouldn't want to go and be a part of that? Amen. He promised to hold them from the future trial. But then number three, I've got to land this softly. We notice number three, the simple counsel to The church, the sovereign Christ, the special circumstances, now the simple counsel. This letter gives some application, not only to the church in Philadelphia, but also to us today, of how we can seize the opportunity, the open door that God has given us. Notice what it says in verse 8. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you... There it is. An open door. Just as Philadelphia had an opportunity to do ministry in their local setting, do you know that every church has an open door to minister somehow, some way? We have it here at eight seventy five Monta Vista Road, Candler, North Carolina. And what we need to do as we apply this letter to ourselves is pray that God would open our eyes, sensitize us to the open door of ministry that exists right outside that front door. And it it will involve us looking at our community in a different way, thinking about new ways to reach people who might seem far from God. Listen, there is no reason why this church with its strategic location, with the beautiful campus that we have, with the loving people that are here week in and week out, there is no reason why we cannot turn Candler upside down for Jesus Christ. We've got the Word of God. We've got wonderful people who love the Lord. We've got the Spirit of God. Friend, we need to see the potential. Past two years, we got involved in something that Buncombe County Schools was doing during the summer. Just to give you an example of seeing the potential. What the Buncombe County Schools was doing was setting up a tent right down here off 1923 at the Vulcan Quarry. There's a storage building right down there. They were setting up a tent to that trailer park community and they were asking for churches, any churches that wanted to, would you come one day a week volunteer an hour, and hand out lunches to kids during the summer because some of them don't have anything to eat. You know how sometimes God just opens the door and you don't even have to pray about it? Lord, I I know you want me to do this. Well, when this came our way, we started to do it. And we built a relationship with a family, a single mom who had two girls. Those girls came every week. We gave them food. We built a relationship with them. And later on that summer, our bus went into their trailer park, picked them up, and brought them to the VBS. Those two sisters heard the gospel. They made a decision for Christ. And friend, what was the difference? The difference was the open door. It was big enough to drive a Mack truck through. All we had to do was seize the opportunity, and God added His blessing to it. Think about last fall. Last fall, Inca High School called and said, hey, we're looking for somebody to feed our football team. I didn't have to pray about it. Hey, God's going to send us a whole football team to witness to and love on. Those boys piled in our Family Life Center. Rowena fixed a A tremendous spaghetti dinner for them. We had Jamie Johnson from Crossfire come. He preached to them. And glory to God, we had 12 young people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And last December, I got to baptize one of them. That's the way that God works. Last fall, we had Bring a Friend Day. On the Sunday before Thanksgiving, remember? We had loaves of bread that we handed out to all the people that we wanted to reach. And at the end of the service, praise God, little Crystal Ray came down, gave her heart and life to Jesus, and just a few weeks ago, I got to baptize her. Friend, do you have eyes to see the potential, to see the open door around us? It's there. There's enough lost people in Candler to fill this church up five times over. Do we have the eyes to see them and the will and the love to go and get them and bring them to Jesus? You see, God blesses when we decide to take Him at His Word and walk through the open door that He has provided. It's all around us. Drive around. Look at the trailer parks. Look at the neighborhoods. Look at all the kids going in and out of school. Look at your neighbors, the shut-ins. Look at your family. Lord, give us eyes to see the lost. Because there's no plan B beside you and me. It's us. This is our time. This is our open door. This is our community. Our chance to take our town for Jesus Christ. Warren Wisby said this. He said, in a very real sense, the church today is like the Philadelphian church. For God has set us before us many open doors of opportunity. If He opens the door, we must work. If He closes the doors, we must wait. Above all, we must be faithful to see the opportunities and not the obstacles. Even obstacles like the Red Sea are no match for our God. What else did he tell this church? Not only to see the potential, but also verse 8. This is so good. Seek His power. Man, it was like when I read this little phrase in the verse that God like put a a fish hook in my jaw and just drugged me in. Look what it says there in verse 8. He says, Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And watch this. I know that you have but little power. Of all the churches listed in in, in the book of Revelation, Philadelphia was the smallest one. They were the weakest one. The one that nobody looked at as being able to do anything for God's kingdom. And he said to them, Look, I know that you have little power. But guess what I hold in my possession? The key of David, which is able to unlock to you all the resources that you will need to accomplish your mission. You know what little churches often do? Little churches like us, they off, we often get in a pity party, don't we? We compare ourselves to the big church down the road. And we get in this game of comparing ourselves to everybody else and we say, Well, we don't have the budget that they have. And we don't have the talent that they have. And we don't have as many volunteers. Listen to me. You don't have to be big and have a fat budget and be cutting edge and cool and edgy to do big things for Jesus. You just have to realize, Lord, I'm weak, but You're strong. Lord, I'm poor, but You own the cattle on a thousand hills. Lord, I don't have a message to preach except the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, if You'll use me as weak. And small, Lord, you can have all of me, and friend, that's what blesses the heart of God. Don't look at us and think, Look at all the limitations. Look and think, God, what could you do here? Look at the possibilities of what God could do. I have a weekly ritual. I walk in the family life center and I go in each room and I pray and I say, God, would you fill this room? Lord, would you fill this room with children? I go in the married classroom. Lord, would you fill this room with couples who want to give their marriage and their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ? I go into the gym and I say, Lord, would you fill this gym with people who need Christ? And I don't look at the limitations. I look at the possibilities and think, if God could do it in Philadelphia, I'm gullible enough to believe that He can do it here at little old Liberty Baptist Church. Friend, don't you believe that just because we're small, just because we don't have the budget, just because we don't have the talent of some other church down the road, that God can't do a work here that will blow your hair back. I believe that God wants to do something in and through us. And what do we have to do? Rely on His power. Because when we rely on His power, you know what? Nobody cares who gets the credit, but everybody cares about who gets the glory. And that's what I want. I want a move of God. I want God to do something so amazing that they won't be able to look at it and say, well, it's because you've got a smart pastor. Well, it's because your deacons have it together. Well, it's because you guys have got such a talented worship band. I don't want anybody to be able to look at it and say it's because of any work that we've done. I want them to be able to look at it and say, what is God doing over there on the top of that hill? You think He can do it? I believe it with every fiber of my being. And if you're visiting today and you don't have a church, friend, I invite you. Come be a part of what God wants to do here. Seek His power. And then lastly, stay persistent. Stay persistent. Verse 11. Notice what He says here. I... I am coming soon. Are we living in the last days, church? Amen. I think we're living in the last of the last days. Jesus says, I am coming soon. Friend, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if he were to come today, would you be ready? If Jesus isn't your Savior and he comes, guess what? You'll be left behind. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friend, the sand in the hourglass is running out. Not only in your life and in my life, but in the prophetic timetable that God has set, it's evening time. Things are beginning to converge in our world, the likes of which is all new. Things, pieces are moving. The stage is being set. Watch the evening news and read the Bible. And you can see the convergence of all these things coming together. The stage is being set for the curtain to rise. And the final act of God's divine drama is to begin. And it starts with the church exiting stage left. And then God beginning a judgment period here on the earth. We need to stay persistent. Because we've only got so much time to reach the lost. We've only got so much time to work for the Lord. Because when I go to heaven, when you go to heaven, you don't want to go empty-handed, do you? You want to take as many as you can with you. And you want to have worked for the Lord so that when you get there, you will have a crown to take off of your brow and cast at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, I give it all back to you because you gave it all for me. So he says, "Stay persistent. Hold on to what you have, so that no one may be able to snatch your crown." I'm so excited about going to heaven. If God came today, I'd be ready to go. I'm so excited about singing with the angels in heaven. Holy, 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 the so Lord God Almighty. I can't even put into words how excited I am about laying eyes on Jesus Christ. Yeah worshiping Him, crowning Him with many crowns. Oh, church, do you believe it? It's in the book. I believe it and I'm looking forward to it. Are you ready? Let me finish with this. Robert Morgan tells a story in one of his books about how God opens and closes doors. Just like what we read here in this passage. Listen to this. It's about a missionary. His name was Christian Claypool. He said Christian Claypool was on a mission trip to Cuba. He was going to smuggle Spanish Bibles into the communist country. So he smuggled several of these Bibles into his suitcase. But then, when he got to the customs line, of course, the police. Their version of the TSA was going to look through that suitcase. Here's what happened. When I arrived in Cuba, I was alarmed when I was singled out by the Cuban officials. But for some reason, when the officer went to open my suitcase, the zipper would not budge. And the the officer couldn't even open it an inch. In fact, The officer fought with the zipper at length for several minutes until he just gave up the struggle and said, Go on through. Despite the prolonged effort, the zipper would not move at all. I was perplexed. This was a brand new suitcase I had just bought days before. Of course, the guard didn't know that underneath all my clothes and items were Bibles. But she waved me through the line, Later that day when I arrived at the hotel, I got a knife to try and cut open my suitcase. But before I did that, I thought, well, I'll just give the zipper one last tug." And as I did, zoom! It opened without a fight. The Bibles inside were handed out as part of our mission trip. And I'm convinced, this writer said, it was all God's doing because the God that can close doors is also the God that can open doors and bless His church however He sees fit. I'm praying for an open door, aren't you? And I'm praying for eyes to see that when it's open, we can go right through.